I thought I'd put up a couple photos here of, and give an expression of gratitude for the many people who helped with the first block party that we've had, at least to my knowledge, at Village Church. And uh, wasn't it a wonderful occasion? Just a good time with friends and neighbors and an expression of community with our surrounding friends in, in this uh, great place that God's put us. So just a word of thanks for those of you who helped make that happen. And also a, um, a solicitation of prayer today at the uh, Walla Walla County Fairgrounds. We have a booth and we will be inviting people to um, sign up for community programs, health and, health and wellness programs, and for Bible studies. So I'd like to have us remember that as we are worshiping together. There are people at the fair booth, and um, I know God is using that moment in someone's life for something good. Before we begin our study from God's Word, let's just pause for a moment and ask for His blessing. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that we can gather together in this beautiful place to worship you. We pray that your Spirit would speak to us now in the stillness of this place through your Word through the ministry of your angels, by your influence within us, nudge us in the direction of your kingdom and give us strength and power to follow in your footsteps, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. People's awareness of and memory about the Bible is actually kind of headed in the wrong direction these days. If you ask someone what the forbidden fruit was that Adam and Eve ate in the Garden of Eden, the most natural answer would probably be an apple. Now, the Bible doesn't say it's an apple. I don't know what fruit it was, but the Bible does not say. Ask someone how many wise men visited Jesus, and the number one answer would be three. Now, we don't know that. We know that there were three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, but we don't know how many wise wise men there were. When I was young, my grandparents, my kinney grandparents, lived just down the block from us, and Mama B, that's the affectionate name we had for my grandmother on my dad's side, um, she kept a meticulous house, and in my memory, we were always welcome there, but it was, there was always, always a little invitation to go to the sink and wash our hands as we came into the house. And maybe that's where it was embedded in my mind, that saying, cleanliness is next to godliness. Of course, that's in the Bible, isn't it? No, that's not in the Bible either. It's a nice saying, but it's not there. Gallup, that analytics company best known for the opinion polls that it creates, conducted a survey a while ago about Bible literacy. Did you know that a whole bunch of people thought that the epistles were the wives of the apostles? (laughs) Well, that's not even close. Some people thought that Jesus' most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, was named that because he delivered it on horseback. No, not that either. And some people also thought that Noah was married to Joan of Arc. (laughs) No, not that either. 
There are numerous things that are attributed to God, sayings, stories, quotes, but they're not actually in the Bible, and God didn't actually say those things. So why is it important? Well, here's why. Because sometimes we're challenged by the wrong ideas we have about God, about his character, about the way he works, that are created by these sayings and these stories, these quotes that are really not even in the Bible and they cause our love and trust for him to be challenged. Maybe one of the most damaging thoughts that people think the Bible says is that God never gives us more than we can handle. Have you ever heard that? Maybe you've thought that. Maybe you've had it where someone was facing a challenge or adversity. Maybe there was trouble at home, trouble at work, maybe relationship issues or maybe health problems, whatever it might be. And wanting to encourage, wanting to support, someone says something like this, you can do it. You're a survivor. You're a fighter. You can handle it. And besides, besides, we know that it's not beyond your ability to cope because the Bible says, the Bible says that God never gives us more than we can handle. Huh. You intended that, or that was intended as a comforting statement. You just got to trust God when things get excessively bad. Your situation will not become unbearable. Your life will not be unmanageable because God won't allow things to come to you such that it goes that way. But does the Bible actually say that? You know, life will often give people more than they can handle. That's what I've seen anyway. In fact, if you've read the Bible at all, which I know you have, um, you know that it's a story of people that have been given more than they can handle, more or less. Seems like one after the other. To name the obvious fact, part of handling things is not dying, right? And everybody in the Bible dies, some of them horribly so. For example, you might say, hey, Abel, I wouldn't worry about your brother Cain. God gives us, never gives us more than we... Or Uriah the Hittite, don't worry excessively about King David and your Bathsheba. God will help you through. Or how about John the Baptist? John, don't lose any sleep about Herod and his wife. Starting with Jesus and going down the line, the Bible is mostly the story about people whose faith in God does not prevent their, their suffering and sometimes even causes their suffering. And what's interesting to me is that they never console one another in the Bible by saying, don't worry, God won't give you more than you can handle. I don't read that anywhere in Scripture. Jesus' life entered in crucifixion. His disciples take up the cause, and almost straight out of the gate, 
they get arrested, beaten, and thrown in jail. And then the book of Acts records this about them. Acts chapter 5, verse 41. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. When Paul was called by Jesus to be his disciple, when he was on the road to Damascus, a man by the name of Ananias was told to go visit Saul and bring this first message of Jesus to him. Here's the message, Acts 9.16. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. That's Jesus talking. That's Jesus talking. And then, in one of the most inspiring chapters in the Bible, Hebrews chapter 11, we're told person after person who are given more than they can handle. And these things are happening to real people. Notice what it says. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskin and goatskin, destitute, persecuted, mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in the streets and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what they had been promised since God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Just think of it. It's an amazing verse there. This saying, God won't give you more than you can handle, that's not in the Bible. If someone says that, you have to ask, have you read the Bible? In my opinion, as I read God's word, the people God used seem to be remarkably unconcerned about how much suffering they would have to do as long as they had a cause worth suffering for and a Savior that suffered along with them. That's what you and I have. We have a cause worth suffering for and a Savior worth suffering with. The Bible verse that most people cite in this regard about God will never give you more than you can handle is a saying that comes from the book that we've been studying this year, 2019, here at Village Church, that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. We're going through it chapter by chapter, and we've been inspired week by week. We've been rebuked occasionally. We've been encouraged and Paul's practical, insightful um, words to us have been an encouragement to us. Last week, you maybe will recall that we looked at the last verses of chapter number 9 in 1 Corinthians where Paul compared the Christian walk to an Olympic athlete, an Olympic competition. Now this week, we step into chapter number 10 in 1 Corinthians and we see Here is the verse that is often misunderstood. It says, No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, He will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Notice the operative word, temptation. Paul doesn't say in this verse, Expect Minimal suffering. 
Because God will never give you more than you can bear. That's not what Paul's message is. His point is not that the Christian walk is generally a pleasant stroll and with unchallenging experiences. That's not what Paul is saying. Rather, he's saying that God will not allow temptations to come your way without providing you a way of escape. And so don't let yourself rationalize into sin like it's something that's inexcusable or inevitable or acceptable like we oftentimes do given our circumstances. This powerful promise that Paul tells us here at verse number 13 of chapter 10 comes right in the middle of Paul's strong counsel for the church in Corinth. You remember the last verses of chapter number 9 include Paul's words to fight the good fight, to, um, to give the Christian walk our best effort. We talked about that last week. We talked about how if athletes push themselves to the limit in training and competition just for a crown that withers, how much more should we give our best, our utmost for something that is going to last forever, an incorruptible crown in, in heaven, an inheritance forever. Now, with that as a backdrop, Paul then uses examples from Israel's history during their wilderness wandering to warn the church in Corinth of the challenges they face. While it's true that everyone enters the race, everyone who enters the race will win, it's not a matter of competition. It's not me against you. Nor is it something, uh, like we mentioned last week, that we are earning our reward by the good work that we're doing. But it is also true that we can forfeit that reward. We can have confidence in God, but then we can let go of that confidence. We have to stay in His hands. There's a saying that goes like this, once saved, always saved. That's the doctrine of eternal security. That is not biblical. Paul recalls the story of Israel's experience in the Old Testament when they were taken out of the land of slavery as a, as a case in point, and he uses it in order to encourage the church in Corinth. It's the first verses of chapter number 10. We'll look at verse, beginning with verse number 1. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. <clears throat> they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food, drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. That's serious words. Paul walks through this signature event of Jewish history. The exodus, that calling out of slavery and the becoming God's people. And he uses that as an illustration of the challenge we face as followers of God today. 
God guided them. God watched over them in amazing ways. It was a cloud by day and a fire by night. They crossed through the Red Sea. Imagine it. The sea divided. They walked through on dry ground. Manna, day after day, fell to the ground except on Sabbath. And they went out to collect it and ate it. And God even gave, supplied them with a specialty food on occasion like quail. Everywhere they went, the, the ground was barren. It was desert. But God miraculously provided water for their flocks and for all the people. And they never lacked. And then he says, the water that filled their bodies, the water that quenched their thirst, was none other than the preexistent Christ. Jesus Christ was that rock that brought them water, that, that quenched their thirst. He was the one that would eventually be the sin bearer, the active agent of God in saving us. That was the one that accompanied them. He says in verse number four, they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them. That rock was Christ. What a privilege. What an honor that Israel enjoyed. What care, what attention he gave them day after day. Yet, and this is Paul's point, yet they didn't get it. They didn't get it. He says their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Of all the people who left Egypt, everyone who was 20 years old or older who escaped by God's mighty hand out of the land of slavery and saw these great miracles, every one of them, save only Caleb and Joshua, died in the wilderness. All of them had seen the cloud. All of them had seen the fire. All of them had taken water from that rock. All of them had taken the manna and the quail. All of them had received the tokens of God's favor. But all of them, except two, abandoned the ship in one way or another. And so Paul says, yeah, they cared about God, but they didn't care about Him enough to make a difference. They witnessed God's mighty work, His mighty acts. They accepted His care and keeping, but it had no effect on them. He says in verse number five, nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. You see, just because they were on the registry for the exodus from Egypt, that didn't get them in the promised land. And then Paul applies this lesson to the church in Corinth. This lesson from Moses and, and King David and the council of Jeremiah. He says all these stories, all these things, all the words of Isaiah and Micah, and the, all of these are personal, relevant, applicable. He says in verse number six, now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. And then he says these things were meant to instruct us, to encourage us, to be examples for us so that we might be responsible before God and not make the same mistake they made. 
And then right after this, in rapid succession, Paul recounts disasters. He first lists all the ways that God brought about his care and keeping for Israel. Then he says, one after the other, these horrible things that happened to them in the wilderness. Verse number six. Verse number six remembers Israel's disdain for God's provision and they craved the food that they used to have in Egypt. Verse number six. Verse seven recalls the time when Moses' absence, he went up on the Mount Sinai receiving the Ten Commandments from God and while he was away, the people all said, Moses is gone, God isn't here. Aaron, you make something for us that we can worship. So he did. They abandoned God and, and they surrounded this idol with Immoral, degrading, revelry as they bowed to this cattle god. And again, in verse number 8 in 1 Corinthians 10, he remembers a camp that was infected with immorality as Jewish men abandoned God for their lustful desires for these, la- from, for these ladies from other countries. And then verse number 10, he, 9, he also remembers the, the poisonous snakes that invaded Israel's camp. And then he finishes the warning in verse number 10 by reminding them of, of the in, internal strife that occurred against Moses and his God-given authority and how it ended with thousands of people dying. Then Paul repeats his conviction That all these stories are there. All these stories are included for us who stand at the threshold of the coming age. Notice his words here. Verse number 11. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. That's Corinth and that's us on whom the culmination of the ages have come. You see, Israel's story from the Old Testament is exemplary. The miraculous power that God displayed, that God worked, His care and keeping, is evidence that He is the mighty God that, that is helping them. And that experience of coming out of Egypt and, and becoming God's people was existence rearranging. It was perspective transforming as these, this group of slaves became God's people. But in these words, in chap- chapter 10 and verse number 11, Paul says that something even greater is upon us. He says, those of us who, the, who have, are now in the culmination of the age to come. What happened? What's he talking about here? He's saying that in Jesus Christ, in God made flesh, in this God human being who came to earth to save us from our sins, who lived a perfect life, who died a perfect death in our behalf and was raised from the dead and now is there to offer us hope and help. This makes the Exodus look small. The good news of salvation in Christ has come. It changes everything. That God's righteousness is mine. It's yours. Because someone who knew no sin became sin for me. And there's something compelling about that. There's something urgent about that. You can't hear it and walk away from it. It changes you. You've got to do something with it. You're either with it or you're out of it. 
one of the two, but you've got to be something. And like Israel's wanderings in the wilderness, some in the church in Corinth were toying with eternal things. And so Paul tells them, do you realize what's going on here? Corinth was an interesting place. We've talked about it over the weeks we've been studying 1 Corinthians. This place that Paul was writing to was a port city and as such notorious for greed. It was rampant in sexual promiscuity. It was steeped in idolatry and filled with arrogance and selfishness. Corinth was a place where people went to pursue temptation. It was like the Reno, Nevada, or the Las Vegas of our day. It was Temptation Island. That's Corinth. And the church in Corinth was in danger of losing its perspective on what it meant to be a follower of Jesus Christ. They were taking things too lightly. They were too casual about the intersection between faith and culture. They scoffed at this godless influence that pervaded their city. The lure of this lustful um, pagan ethos with its seductive temple practices, they scoffed at it like it was irrelevant or inconsequential. They didn't see the, the urgency of God's calling. He did, they didn't see the chasm between being a follower of Christ and what was going on in their world. I have to say that's still a challenge for us today. Challenge for me. Paul sees the importance of living every day on purpose. And he says this is the greatest event in human history that has ever happened. The culmination of the ages has come. Jesus Christ has come to earth. The creator God came and made himself flesh and blood for you and me, the ruler of the universe, humbled himself for you and me. Jesus, the second person of the Godhead, changed history forever by giving his life in my behalf, in your behalf. Paul is saying that truth deserves my best attention. My most earnest focus, Jesus Christ, is coming back. We don't know when, but imminence is a reality. Exactly when is immaterial. But ever since the New Testament times, people have been waiting for Jesus' return. Peter said it this way, I like it. Second Peter 3, 11 and 12, since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed is coming. What kind of people ought you to be, Peter says? You know, we live in an era just one issue after another is a growing reality from nuclear war to the rainforests burning and the polar ice cap melting and mass shootings happening over and over again and hurricanes happening too often and civility just seeming to be absent from life, that urging from Paul and Peter takes on a new 
significance. And then comes the verse for today. That great promise, one of the greatest promises in the Bible that, we're, that we have misconstrued or many times have. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13, No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to man. Mankind, God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you are able, can bear. But, but when you are tempted, He will also provide a way out so that you will be able to endure it. See, this, this promise comes right in the center of Paul's warning about the life and death struggle that is happening between belief and a world that corrodes belief. God's all-sufficient. Christ dying on the cross and resurrection to new life power is available, Paul says. It's offered to me. It's offered to you, Paul says. But I've got to choose it. I've got to lean into it. I've got to claim it. I've got to accept it every day. And too often, I choose a different way. Not because I have to, but because I want to. Here's a weird thing about me. Maybe it's weird about you too. Once I want whatever it is Once I want whatever it is, a temptation for me, once I want it, I can find all sorts of ways to rationalize doing what I want to do with all sorts of reasons to do what I want to do even though I know I shouldn't do it. And you know what? I can even drag God into this. I can. If I really want to do something, I love donuts. You probably didn't know that, did you? I accept donuts as offerings. (laughs) Just kidding. I know I shouldn't like donuts. They are completely unhealthy. They're full of health-killing sugar. And the oils that are in those things, I tell you what, they'll kill you slowly and surely. And then they just go way too easy to fat, okay, in your body. But you know what? There is a to-die-for donut place right on 9th. Modern donuts. Have you been there? Don't tell me. (laughs) They're fresh every morning. And their maple bars and their apple fritters. Oh, man. Those are good. So, just the other day, I got to thinking, maybe God wants me to have a donut. (laughs) After all, I exercised this morning. After all, I I ate a good healthy breakfast. After all, my lunch was a bit on the measly side and I need a little bit more to fill me up before dinner. And so, you know, wanting to be fair about this, I lay out a fleece and tell God, I'll drive around popular donuts seven times. (laughs) And if I see a parking spot by the door, I know that's your, it's your sign, God, that I should have a donut. <laughs> sure enough, on the seventh time around, there's a spot and I pull in. Just like that. You know, when my kids were small, we had a, a wonderful dog. It was a golden lab. And 
it began to dawn on me that our golden lab, Champ, was gaining weight. And I thought, how could this be? We're pretty careful about what we give him, you know, how much food he gets. And, and so I bit, did a bit of sleuthing, checking on Champ, and I discovered that Champ was getting into the bag of dog food. He had a way of getting in his nose into that, and he was eating himself into obesity. I tried to explain to Champ, you're ruining your health, Champ. He didn't care. In fact, he didn't want to be delivered from temptation. (laughs) You know, I love that dog, but he had no moral character whatsoever. (laughs) He was a slave to his desire. A slave to his desire. You know, our world, in our world today, temptation has become a tease. It's become a word that's on um, menus in restaurants. It becomes, it's become a place, a destination, temp- temptation island. We don't see it the way it really is. Temptation destroys. Destroys. It will try to unravel your humanity by convincing you that you're merely an appetite that needs to be gratified. God doesn't do that. God gives you a way out. That's what Paul says. I love this verse. Let's look at it again. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. So God has given you a way out so that you can endure it. He'll give you fellowship. He'll give you fellowship with fellow believers if you're an addict. He'll give you the opportunity to confess and come clean. He'll give you another person that loves you, really loves you. A friend who will pray with you and for you. A friend to whom you can be accountable to. God will do that. God will give you a sense of conviction. It'll say, run, don't walk. Run away from that. He'll give you the warning bells of conscience. The Holy Spirit to prompt you that you're on the wrong path. He'll give you a man or a woman in a group that will pray for you. On whom you can lean and be accountable to. By the way, we're going to start one of those groups on Wednesday night. Men, do you want to join us? It'll be the best decision you've ever made. Every human being has a conscience that responds to the promptings of the Holy Spirit. Every human being. And every human being also is lured by evil and unworthy things. Both these are happening. We're all wired by our genes, by our culture, by our environment, by systems, by powers. And all these things are way off from perfect. And sooner or later, we all faced, face a test that reveals our moral and spiritual foundations and the strength or weakness on which we build our lives. Sooner or later, it comes. Even Jesus didn't escape this reality. In the wilderness, 
at the beginning of his ministry, his temptation to use his God-given powers was so intense. The devil attempted him to, to take the easier route, the more spectacular path. But instead, he chose suffering. He chose humility. He chose obedience so that he could offer us freedom. And Paul here in these verses warns Corinth and warns us of the immense challenges to faith and purity. But he's also deeply aware of the reality of God's care, support, power, and intercession that are available to us. And he says, God is there in every temptation. He will never allow you to experience something that he won't give you power to endure and conquer. God is faithful, not you. God is faithful. He'll not let you be tempted beyond what you can endure. That's one of the greatest promises in Scripture, isn't it? A way out is available. There's help. There's power. There's resources. There's alternatives. There's solace. There's comfort. There's relationships. There's fellowship. When you feel that tug of old, destructive associations, when the going gets hard and uphill, and the battle appears that it's useless, and the old ways attractive, God himself will help us to look to him. As one person put it, I like the way they said it, human faithfulness rests on his faithfulness. That's true. It's all about God. It's all about Him. The problem is that I too often settle in, uh, I, I settle in for doing what I want to do and I don't look for a way out. And there is a way out. Your temptations are not beyond what you can handle. Jesus became a man. Jesus died in my behalf and yours so that He could make power available. Power is available. No one, no one has more power than he believes is his. And we have Jesus' power. Trust God. So if you've been playing with temptation, if there's some dishonesty that has been creeping around in your life, some improper relationship that you're fostering, maybe it's some sexual intimacy that's beyond what's good and right and true, some habit that's becoming an addiction, some issue in you that's causing you to become, follow a pattern of lying and deceit instead of being generous. God is not mocked, Paul says. Sin will corrode your soul. Sin will ruin your character. Sin will destroy your eternity if you let it. But you don't have to let it. You don't have to let it. Make the decision now to be delivered by God's faithfulness. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we just thank you that in Jesus Christ we have everything we need for life 
everything we need for godliness, everything we need in power and strength, everything we need, you supply us. Sometimes it comes in the form of another friend or a group, a fellowship where we can lean in and find accountability and support and people to pray with us. Sometimes it comes from your spirit that speaks within us and tells us to run and not walk away. Sometimes it comes through your word that strengthens us to walk the walk, but you always give it, Lord. But my prayer for myself and all of us that we will be people who accept your word, accept your faithfulness, accept your promise to us that you will provide a way of escape. Help us to take that way, to make that escape ours through Jesus Christ. And we will give you the thanks and praise always and forever. Right now I know that there are some people here that probably are dealing with some dark issues. Maybe it's addictive behaviors. Maybe it's a pattern of, of deceit or whatever it might be. Maybe it's, it's some dark issue. Lord, I know your word says that there's relief, that there's hope, that there's power, that you never give us more than we can handle when it comes to temptation. You always give us help. So, Lord, may we lean on you. May we find in you our solace and comfort and the one to give us deliverance and victory. Through Jesus Christ, in his name we pray, amen.